Amen. Good morning. How are you guys doing? We got the fans on for AC today. Is that okay? Because that's all you got. Like the thing broke last week, so we'll keep you updated on that. Um, but my name is Derek. If you're uh, visiting with us first time, I'm the pastor here. And um, so we're glad that you're here. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, James chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Uh, as you're turning there, if you brought a Bible, uh, let me just make a couple of uh, front-end announcements, and then uh, that way we don't have to do this at the end. But um, a couple things. One, after today will be our last uh, Sunday in this New Testament letter of James. We've done this for five weeks now. And we're, believe this or not, we're entering into a season next week that takes us to the Advent season, which is all about Christmas, which is crazy to think about. But tomorrow's October, by the way, if you weren't around for that. Um, so we're heading there. And ever since the Easter season, which goes back into the spring, uh, we've been working through some of these letters in the New Testament. We sort of ejected from the gospel stories, and we've been in these letters. So... Um, and I would say that we have been descending into some pretty profound things, and this is probably, uh, we're right at the bottom today. And then, uh, so if you've been with us since at least Easter and you're thinking, gosh, it just feels like we're at the bottom, that's intentional, but we're going to come out of that and move towards uh, Christmas over the next few weeks. Uh, now, here's the thing. We're going to teach through uh, some passages in the, the New Testament book called Hebrews, which I was talking to my brother who's writing his uh, dissertation right now on some New Testament stuff. He's like, man, nobody preaches through Hebrews. Um, there's a reason for that because it's just terribly confusing. So we thought, you know, we'll do that. Um, so I invite you back over the next few weeks as we run through that. But I, I want to say this as, as a way of uh, not necessarily advertising it, but that's kind of what I'm doing. These passages that we're going to look at in Hebrews, they all are very, very similar. Uh, and they're all about Jesus. They're all about who he was, what he accomplished, what the whole thing is about, and uh, it sets the stage so nicely uh, for the Christmas season. And so I don't want you to miss any of those weeks uh, if you're around. If you're in a small group, uh, we'll have some things available to sort of process, process that uh, in community together as well. But um, yeah, so that's coming up. Also November 11th, uh, which is what? Anybody just want to yell that out? Beyond Sunday. Thank you, both of you. Um, but as you leave today, make sure you pick up one of the Beyond Sunday information tubes. Uh, if you're new with us, Beyond Sunday is this day where we take up this massive offering and then we just give it away. Uh, and so it all goes to mission work for the next year. And so pick up that on your way out between the front doors. There you go. How did I do on the announcements? Thank you. Okay. Uh, James chapter 5. Are you ready? I know this sounds weird, but we're going to talk about sick people today. And I know that just sounds like that's not relevant because you're all here and you're not sick. Maybe you are sick and we're all going to get sick. Thank you very much. But uh, there's this passage in the last part of James's letter that is about sick people. And it is about the church's response to sick people, which again may feel completely irrelevant to you today, but it's actually about this deeper issue, and it has to do with community. It has to do with making sure that you're in relationships of caring people. Uh, but the, the front and center sort of object lesson in this text is about people who are sick. And I'm supposing, I'm, I'm assuming anyway, that everybody in here goes through that uh, in their lifetime. Has anybody been sick in the last month, by the way? It's just going around. Okay, good. So maybe that's why we're all continuing to get sick, because you guys come here. But that's okay. And the fan's blowing it onto me today, so that's good. If you cough, go that way. All right, let me start with this story. Last Sunday afternoon, 
uh, we were setting up uh, in our place for a small group. The small group was coming over within the hour. And so we're kind of doing the thing you do when you're hosting a small group. You take everything that's on the floor and you throw it in the mystery room. Uh, and then people come over and go, gosh, you live such a nice, clean, ordered life. And we're like, that's right. You're all of a sudden arrogant. Um, but don't go in the bathroom, right? So we're getting set up for small group, and then I get this text message from someone else in the church, and the text message is about another person in our church family who had to go to the hospital that afternoon. And it's a pretty long text, and I'm reading through it, and as a pastor, staff member, and also at this point in the day, or at that point in the day, a small group host, uh, I, my stomach started to turn. Because on one hand, I was thinking, how am I going to get up to the hospital and back in time for group, which the answer was, it's just not going to happen. Because once you go to the hospital, you're there. And so I had that stress, you know, and my wife was doing her part, getting the house ready, getting some appetizers ready. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to look at her and go, hey, I'm going to jet for a little bit. And, uh, you know, the, the, the new daughter, the new daughter, the, our brand new daughter is running around and screaming and climbing the bookshelves and knocking over my bike for the 10th time. I mean, it's just not the time to go, hey, I'm going to go do something else. So you have to understand, like I'm just being honest here, there was a little bit of a stress factor of like, what am I going to do about this hospital situation? The other side of me, the pastoral side, which often takes over the other part of me, is I was like, okay, how's this person doing? Because I know this person. And I'm trying to read the text and feel the situation, kind of enter into it a little bit. But more than anything, there was just this stress of like, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I can't be in two places at one time. And then the very last part of the text said this. It said, I may go up there, but only if they want me to. So the person texted me saying, hey, I know you know this person. I just thought I'd let you know, but they had to go to the hospital. It's semi-serious. Uh, this is the situation, and I'm building in stress level. And then the last part of the text says, but you don't need to go. I'm going. I'll take care of it. I'll go up there and be with that family and that person in particular. I just thought you need to know what's going on, but we're on top of it. And I think about, like, that's, that's the way it should work, is it? Because, I mean, I just can't be. I just can't be. And when we stand on the stage, well, I say we, I speak in the plural sometimes, but me, <laughs> that just takes the edge off. But when we say to you, when we annoy you about getting connected at a deeper level with people here in this place, it's kind of about that. It's about being in these relationships where care is available. Like the level of care is going to go up for you if you're already in relationships with caring people. If you're in relationships that are defined by care, pastoral care, the level of care for you is going to go up. The inverse is also true. If you're floating around, not putting roots down with people, the level of care goes down. The level of availability uh, of people in your life, it just goes down. And so the text message that I got last week is this nice reminder of what God has in mind for his church, that it's an, it's an operating community of care. And what's most interesting is that the needs of people within the church are often met, at least this is by design, I think, from within, not from without. Like when we go through uh, struggles here as a church, you know who never calls us to help out? The mayor. The mayor never calls. And we're like a, we're like a, 
a, a consistent, faithful, resident tenant of this great city. He never calls us to see how we're doing. Never, which is fine. He's not supposed to. He never calls any church. The government doesn't do that for us. It's not supposed to. The church, like according to scriptures, it heals itself from within, which is a very extraordinary uh, sort of thing to be a part of. Not from without, but from within. Uh, Here's a description from the book of Acts. You may be familiar with this, but Luke says, there was not a needy person among them, which is extraordinary. For as many as were owners of lands and houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now you may read that and go, that's ridiculous. But let me just tell you on this side, this happens. People sell stuff. They trade stuff in. They cash things in and they come to us and they go, hey, do with that what you need to do. It happens. It still happens. And when Luke describes this in the book of Acts, like when the early church is like spinning at an optimal pace, like when it's really working like it should, this is what it looks like. Among them, there's just no one who is in need, at least not for long. Needs are met. And that only happens when you're in relationships with caring people. Like if you're rooted down with people, it's going to happen. I have been in a small group where somebody needed something major, like a car, and we pray for that. And then someone is convicted in the circle to give them their 10th car, because you don't need a 10th car. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen it happen. It does happen. And this is especially true, uh, it's especially important in our city, particularly in this city, where most of you uh, are the only ones here in your family. Like, you don't have family that live nearby. Uh, you don't have relatives that live. You're on your own. You're like an exile, right? Uh, this, is, this is your new home, but it's, you came alone or you came with just your family, and it's a very lonely place. And so when things happen, when trouble comes, particularly as we're going to talk about today, when you get sick, it can be a pretty lonely situation. Does that make sense? I mean, you're sort of living in this state of like, I don't really know everybody. I don't know anybody, perhaps. And that's a pretty lonely place to be. And the church, and what's so interesting about the letter of James is it goes to these churches that were spread out amongst the empire, like away from Jerusalem. And so they were on their own, doing life on their own. So it's like just a collection of people who are just like you and me, like we're just kind of living in a new place all by ourselves. And all month we've been in this letter and we've looked at all of the different compassion passages that James uh, lays out for us. Like he just puts out these different groups of people that as a church family you should be compassionate towards. Like the lonely, the orphans and the widows. We talked about that week one. The poor. We even talked about having compassion for our enemies, which is never easy. It never will be easy. But he puts that in there. And then there's compassion uh, for the people within the church. Like people who are growing as fast as we think they should or people who think they're growing better than me or just like just this patience between each other in the church. Like we should have compassion in there. And today he closes out his letter and we close out our series through this letter where he just talks about this group of people that again doesn't really mean much to us unless it's us, but it's about the sick. And this is what you'll see in the passage today and you'll hear from me over and over and over again. But in the church, by God's design, the sick are never to be left alone. And that's what we're going to hit on uh, today. And I will unapologetically talk about you've you got to get connected with people. You've got to get in relationships where there's care involved. If you're touring churches, you need to put your feet down. 
somewhere, here or elsewhere, so that not just you're able to be cared for, but that you can do that for others, that you can become a source of support for other people as well. All right, so uh, I know you've heard the whole passage read, but we're just going to isolate a couple of verses. Are you ready? Sure. Um, here's what James does. He throws out three questions in this main part of the text, and he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him what? Pray. You'll notice a pattern here. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing what? That's prayer, praise, okay? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them do what? Pray over him. And then there's this nice sticky component of anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I know that's what you want to get to because like, what's that all about? We'll talk about that uh, in a moment. But let's just do this 30,000 foot drop or this look at the, the verse to begin with. As you know, if you've been here, the letter of James has been written in the plural from the very beginning, that when he talks about you, when he's speaking to the church, he's talking about us. It's not aimed at any individual person. It's like, let me talk to you as a community. So the language all throughout is very plural, but it shifts in the last part of the letter. It changes to the singular, which is interesting. He's still talking to the community. He says, is anyone among you, any one person, is another way you can read that. Is there any singular person among the whole? So whereas the letter up to this point has been about making sure the one thinks about the whole, now it's let's talk to the whole and make sure they're thinking about the one. Is any one among you suffering? Is any one among you cheerful? Is any one among you sick. And these are the three different situations that he isolates down to a singular person and not just the whole. Suffering, cheerfulness, and sickness. And in each situation, the response is the same. It's prayer, but there's this one little twist. Let's talk about the two extremes first. He starts with suffering and also the state of being cheerful. Now, suffering and cheerfulness are very unambiguous states of being. They're very clear. Now, we need to break this down just a little bit. Suffering is not hard to define, but it may be for you because, and for me because we've fallen into this, but suffering does not mean you are stuck with the iPhone 4 and not the iPhone 5. Are you with me on that? Suffering is not having to deal with the construction on Peachtree Road. Although Christmas is coming, and it might get elevated to that category if on the bottom end, but that's not suffering. Are you with me on that? Kyle, our youth pastor, has worked here for a year, and we were walking back from lunch one day, and he was just so frustrated with the construction, and he was like, when are they ever going to finish that? And I said, bro, never, <laughs> never. I was born at Piedmont Hospital in 1973, and there have been orange barrels on the road ever since. I've said they should make that the state flag. Just hang the orange barrel from the pole. Welcome to Georgia, right? It's never going to get done. But it's not suffering that you have to sit in traffic. See, those are first world problems. And when you read the word suffering in the scriptures, particularly in a letter that's written to churches outside of Jerusalem and in uh, cities and communities that are not all that welcoming to this new thing, the Jesus community, suffering is very different. Suffering is quite different. The majority of James's audience would have been what we would consider living in poverty. 
And so poverty is a very easily definable thing for us. We know what the poverty line is, and we know if anybody's under it, it's very, very difficult for them. But even in our own lives, we experience suffering. I mean, maybe someone we love dies, or there's a divorce, or an affair, or both. There's homelessness. There's a loss of a job. These are components of suffering. There might even be emotional suffering, depression, things that happen internally that we just can't seem to fix, and we suffer because of that. Suffering, and this is intentional on James's part, this is a very definable, very clear state of being. There's no question about it, which is why the command that James gives is very clear. It's like, hey, if you're suffering, if you get that, pray about that. You know you need to be praying through that. So that's one extreme. And then he says, oh, and there's the other extreme. It's the cheerful person. And when you're suffering, that's the person you hate right there is the cheerful person, right? When Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, it is a whole lot easier to mourn with those who mourn because we just love, like, you know, misery loves company, but misery hates cheerful company, right? And so to rejoice with people who rejoice, that's just a terrible, uh, that's a terrible uphill climb for us. Oh, you won. That's, oh, you got engaged. That's great. That's great. You know, whatever. Fill in the blank. Sorry, that was a hard spot. I don't know what. Uh, but the other extreme is a life that is cheerful. And this is, of course, also very temporary. It's the furthest thing from suffering. It might be that you've come out of it and you're just cheerful. And it's a very easily definable state. Like, it's when things are good. It's like you can you're cheerful because life is flowing nicely, like it's just things are good. And it's during those best moments that God is actually okay and commands us to sing praise in those situations, which is the teaching that James gives here. Like if you're cheerful, praise God for that. Praise God that things are good right now. Sing praise he says, like, which is another form of prayer. Now, these commands about praying if you're going through suffering and singing praise if you're going through a time of cheer, you're cheerful at the moment, these sort of go back to the very first part of James. I've, I've did a little mashup here and put some verses together for you, but look at some things from chapter one. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance, perseverance, right? And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, he says, lacking in nothing. It's a nice idealistic, like, hey, if you can just get through this, then there you go. But then he says, if you lack wisdom, and that's not just arbitrary or isolated, it's if you lack the wisdom to get through the suffering, what's he say? Let him what? Ask God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And what do you pray for? Right? You pray that um, you're able to get through it. You pray that, you know, if you're lacking the wisdom to push through the suffering, that you'll be able to do it. Right? And then he says, let him ask God, do not be deceived. And this is the last part of the chapter there. My beloved brothers, every good and perfect gift is from where? From above. Even if it's not, James is just saying, look, when good things happen to you, you direct appreciation and praise to God. So James begins with the extremes. There's suffering and there's cheerfulness. Both of those are fairly unambiguous. I mean, you get it. You know when you're in those places. 
And then he says, is anyone among you sick? Which falls beneath or between the two. Suffering and cheerfulness is cushioned by this sickness. Because sickness is very transitional. It's very on the fence. You're tenuous. It's shaky. Like you don't really know where it's going. And in some cases, you're not even quite sure how you got there. You know how you are when you start getting sick. You just start questioning everybody. Like, hey, do you, do you have something going on in your... Because you were over here last week, and did you breathe on me? Like, you're, you're, do, you're, you're going backwards, like trying to figure out how you got sick. And you ever been so sick, you think, this is it, I'm not coming out of this. Right? So when you're sick, you're in this, like, physical transitional space. Like, you don't really know what's happening. You don't know how you got there. You don't know where it's going. And there's a sense of, with some people, fear, unrest. It's unsettling to be sick. And, and in the first century... Yeah. I mean, if you're sick, it, you might not come out of it. I mean, a doctor, you know, they say Luke was a doctor. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, yeah, your leg looks crooked. I think it's broken. <laughs> Thank you. File that with your insurance. And, uh, but I mean, oftentimes sickness would lead to death. And so when you're sick, you're very, very afraid. But the word sick in the New Testament is pretty expandable. It, it doesn't just mean physical sickness, but there's this emotional sickness. There's mental sickness and struggle. You're not well mentally or emotionally. There's even a spiritual component to it that when the scriptures speak of being sick, sometimes it's about a spiritual sickness. The word itself, the word for sickness, means that you are powerless in your condition. And I know that you feel that way when you're sick. Like, you just can't do anything. You can't play with the kids. You can't do responsible things. You can't pay the bills. You can't even think about anything. You're just powerless. There's a sense of just being resigned to just lie in the bed. Like, you're just lying in bed, waiting. And it's in that situation that James says, yeah, pray, but why don't you have someone else come in and do it for you? See, in all of the other ones, like, When you know you're going through suffering, you pray about that. When you know it's cheerful, you sing songs of praise. But when you're in this transitional spot of being sick, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, or all of those, why don't you have someone else come in and do it for you? Why don't you, he says, call for the elders of the church and have them pray over you? This is extraordinary. The word for elder is the word... uh, Presbyteros, which is where we get the word Presbytery, which we get the word Presbyterian. So if you're from the Presbyterian tribe, then there you go. Uh, this is where it comes from. But the word itself in some of the other writings in the New Testament is used to describe a leadership structure in the church, which we have. We have elders here. We have paid staff as well. But James is an early writing. Uh, the most aggressive historians say that James was written within a decade after the resurrection, which is extraordinary. And so James's understanding of elder is more Jewish than Christian. When he says elder, he is talking about these people who are very mature in their faith. They have age in their faith. They've been around with Christ longer than you, longer than me. They're elders in that sense. 
They weren't so much an elected people to an office or a position, but they, they were this group of people who came with a certain spiritual condition. And so it's less institutional for James and much more fluid here. It's much more relational, and it has, it's very, very local. It's like this. He's saying, if you're sick and in a place where you need someone to pray for you, who's that going to be? Who is going to stand in the gap for you and pray for you? It's not going to be at that moment the person who you've never heard pray, ever. It's going to be these people that you consider miles ahead of you. And so James says, if you're in that spot, if you're in this transitional state where you don't even know what to do, be it physical, emotional, mental, or even spiritual, it's call for the elders. I love that too. There's this nice, you know, the community is equal. Like the sick, who are often also very poor, had the authority to call for the elders, and they would come. They would come and pray with them. And then he says, have them anoint put oil on the person in the name of the Lord. This is a really odd thing. I've been a part of two hospital visits in my entire career where the person asked for that to be done. And I'll just be honest with you, it is bizarre. Particularly when the real doctor is standing there with all the things. Can you hold on just for a second while we do this very odd thing? But in the New Testament times, the use of oil on the sick was fairly common. Uh, let me show you this uh, riff from the Good Samaritan story uh, in Luke chapter 10. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on what? Oil and wine. There's some, at least as far as they knew, there's some medicinal component to the oil. And in the biblical sense as well, there was also this sacramental component. Like there's this kind of, it was done to uh, kings, they anointed new kings to announce their position, to announce their new uh, role in serving their people. It was also used as a symbol of purification. So there's this like repentance thing as well, like this starting over of sorts. Like so in a sense, uh, James may or may not be talking about that as well. It seems that he is suggesting more than likely that this has some sort of medical purpose to it. Like the combination here is, yeah, have some people pray for you, but also do what you have at your disposal to get better. There's a great little piece in the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. This may be my favorite little verse in the whole story, but it's when they're all rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, and there's all these people like fighting them, like trying to keep them from building the wall. He describes the builders as with one hand they built the wall and with the other hand they held a sword. And the interpretation of that for me is like, hey, look, trust God, but watch your back. Do you get that? You don't get that? I mean, basically it's like, do what you can do, but also trust God with everything you have. You don't just throw it up in the air and say, well, I guess it's all done. You do what you can, but you also pray that God might shake things up as well. And again, you have to think first century and not 21st century. And James is saying, look, if you're sick, if you don't know what's going on, have some people who are not in that condition. They they typically think straighter and have them come pray for you. 
And if they have it available to them, let them anoint you with oil. Let them do what they can. And perhaps maybe the anointing of the oil of the person with oil is just the elders saying, God, we just dedicate this person to you. Like we give this situation solely over to you. But for me, the most important thing in this passage is not really found in the mysteries of the oil or even the prayer, but it's in the hard and fast realities of what the church actually does when people are actually sick. That there's people to be with them, that they're not left alone. Uh, Let me just show you this quote from um, Eusebius of Caesarea. This is quite old. Uh, This guy ran around with Constantine. Uh, This is a a description of what was happening following a war. And there was a famine and much disease. And this is what he says in his book called History of the Church. The most of our brethren were unsurpassing in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness. They held fast to each other and they visited the sick fearlessly and ministered to them continually, serving them in Christ and they died with them most joyfully, taking the afflictions of others and drawing the sickness from their neighbors to themselves and willingly receiving their pains. And many who cared for the sick and gave strength to others died themselves, having transferred to themselves their death. That's just extraordinary right there. And he says, and the popular saying, which always seems a mere expression of courtesy, they then made real inaction, taking their departure as the other's offscoring, like in their place, like, we'll stick it out. We'll be with you. We will stand beside you as you are sick and even as you die. I love the last line in uh, uh, Death Cab for Cutie's song, What Sarah Said. He says, because there's no comfort. Naturally, that's what you quote next. But because there's no comfort in the waiting room, just nervous pacers bracing for bad news. And then the nurse comes around and everyone lifts their heads, but I'm thinking of what Sarah said, that love is watching someone die. And that's true. Biblically, that is true. All right, let me show you this photo and please don't laugh, but this is of me. And this is many, many years ago and many, many pounds ago. So I don't want to hear that from you either. But uh, (laughs) true story, I had to play Jesus in a uh, Easter play because I have the hair, but they, they seriously put me on a cross and all I was wearing was like the tunic and I was on the cross, the choir was below me just like in the real crucifixion and um, <laughs> in their bathrobes and glasses. But I'm on the cross and it's just, you know, it's embarrassing enough just because you're playing Jesus and then secondly, you're just kind of up there. And as the choir is leaving, and I'm, I'm going to be the only one there, uh, one of them looks up at me as he's walking by me and says, looks like Jesus had a little too much of the Last Supper. I mean, he made a fat joke as I'm hanging on the cross. I mean, just terrible. It's terrible. Um, that wasn't in my notes, but... He has notes. So I was a volunteer chaplain for a while. This was a a mandatory staff thing for us when I was a youth pastor at this large church down in Henry County. And so we had to go through the training. And as a a slight hypochondriac, this was very unnerving for me. 
I mean, the CDC came in and we're talking about all these diseases. And like, by the end of the day, I had them all. And like, uh, do you know what I'm saying? Anybody else like that? No? Please say you are. Um, so we went through this training. I had to get a tuberculosis test because that was going around at the time. And I was like, what, what, what? Uh, and so, but it was good for me. And I went through the training and I got my badge, which is awesome. You can't read the bottom part of that, but it says quality is our vital sign. It's really cool. Um, so went through the training, got the badge, and then this is how it worked. Once or twice a month, our number would come up at the church, and we would have to go to the hospital at the beginning of the morning, and we would be there throughout the whole day, and you would check in, and they would give you this long list of people to go and visit. Um, Now, these are people that you don't know. These are people that really nobody knows. These are people that came into the hospital, young, old, and everywhere in between, who don't have family, who don't have a church home, who don't have anybody except you. And so you take the sheet of paper and you start going room to room and you walk in and you say, hi, my name's Derek and um, I'm the chaplain here. See my badge. Um, It says here that you're sick and I'm here to pray with you, talk to you, whatever. Now, you may hear that and think that's so beautiful. It's actually very depressing because the more you do it, the more you realize that you are basically acting as a replacement for someone who is otherwise not there. You are a stand-in, sort of wearing a costume of this imaginary friend who didn't make it. Young, old, everywhere in between, these are people who have nobody. And so what sounds like, oh, that's a really nice way to serve people, it's terribly depressing. And as a pastor who's in the scriptures enough you realize that this is not what God intended, especially for the sick. I mean, the chaplain does a lot of good things, but the saddest thing that he or she does is that they act as a stand-in for people who aren't involved in the lives of the sick. Again, you just wear this costume of a friend, and you're not really a friend. You're a fill-in. And it's never more true at that moment the reality that the level of care goes up when you're in relationships with caring people, period. We've changed our benevolence um, layout here so that, because when people call us for assistance, whether it's financial or whatever, it's because they have nobody to go to. They open the phone book and we start with C, so we're pretty high on the list and we get a call and it's from everywhere. And so we've had to change some of our approach just so that we can get to know these people, so that we can help them find a community where they live. I don't know if we'll ever solve poverty, but I kind of think that community is a step in the right direction. A couple of weeks ago, everybody was sick in our home. My son, my wife, me. And to save our daughter, I took her to my parents' house. Like, I drove from right up the street here, all the way into Decatur with the girl in the back, the windows open so nothing would cough on her. And I was holding an empty, large, sort of half-gallon Gatorade bottle just in case. Like it was that sort of situation. And dropped her off, came back, and we just sort of slept through the night. It was just a ter- We were all very terribly sick. And then I got a text the next day from someone else in the church, and they said, hey, how are you guys doing? And I texted back two words, not good. I mean, it was Saturday. And about an hour later, 
the people who texted me walked into our uh, place with soup and crackers. They were wearing rubber suits, but nevertheless, they came in and they gave us like food and they asked how we we're doing. Uh, the wife asked, who's going to preach tomorrow? And I said, me, because <laughs> our staff is not terribly deep. And, um, and so I'll be there. But, uh, and I know that that's not like, there wasn't a life-threatening thing going on. There wasn't anything dead serious, but it was just, you know how it is when you're sick. You just can't function. And they just came over and just did what you do. I mean, here's some soup and here's some crackers and here's some other things. The level of care, I mean, the math is very simple. Like if you're in those relationships, you get taken care of. When we trained our uh, small group leaders this summer, we had a whole component about this. Like, what do you do when someone in your group is sick? Because it's going to happen. I mean, our group has someone who's going through chemo. Like, it's just there. It's going to be in the group. When circles are getting together and doing life together, well, these things are going to happen. So what do you do? Like, we spend some time on that. It's what keeps me up at night as the leader of a, a congregation that's too big for me to take care of every need. Is everyone here in a relationship with others where if something were to happen, are they going to get taken care of? Luke Timothy Johnson about this particular passage says this, the challenge to the community of faith posed by physical, emotional, or mental illness, which again is the definition of sickness in the scriptures, is to test whether the community will act as a friend of God or a friend of the world. Big theme in James. Are you a friend of God or you're a friend of the world? And the church never shines more in that respect than when her people are in need. And in times of sickness, again, whether it's emotional, spiritual, or mental, in this case, physical, our hope for you is that, again, you're in those circles with people enough to where you would consider them relationships of care, that you're not left alone in whatever condition that you're in. And though I'm here for you, I consider it a privilege and an honor to do that. Trust me, I would drop everything and hang. In, I mean, I would hang in the hospital. I mean, I've, I've grown to love that. But it's not my only role here. And more importantly, I cannot be, I don't want to be a replacement, a stand-in for somebody else who really needs to be with you, Right? I love that James ends his letter with this. Like, it's been pretty simple. Like, oh yeah, take care of the lonely and the poor and, you know, even our enemies. I can kind of get that. But this one, like, I love how it just ends with this nice, deep pastoral tone. Like, when the church, when people in your church are going through these things, make sure that they are not left alone. And I would challenge you, again, I've said this at the beginning, but let me say it again here at the end. If you are touring churches because for whatever reason, my challenge to you is that you, you settle down somewhere, here or elsewhere, and that you put roots down with people. Not so much that, oh, this is so that you'll be taken care of, which is true, but more so that you can do that for others. So that you can be that for someone else. It does the church no good in this regard when nobody settles down. And so that's just my personal challenge 
uh, to you in relation to this text. Let me close a moment uh, by talking about communion. And we close our time out every week with this. And uh, I love it. It's the oldest thing we do. I mean, it's, it predates uh, the church, really. It's the Last Supper. It's a reenactment of that. It's when Jesus, the night before he died, was with his friends. They celebrated the Passover meal. And without getting into too much of that, the Passover meal was this ancient Jewish feast that happened every year, and it was uh, to commemorate God's faithfulness to the Israelites. I mean, it's this kind of uh, reenactment of God freeing them, restoring them, bringing renewal uh, to them and to the world. And for us today, like we celebrate this again as a reminder of God's faithfulness. And um, I want you to, and and we're going to put some of the scriptures on the screen. I want you just to say these with me. Uh, But the night that before Jesus died, the scriptures tell us that he took this bread and the juice and he explained the significance relevant to himself. And then he said, if you'll say this with me as well, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we have this instructional piece about take this bread and it represents me physically. That God sent me here in the flesh among you, with you. And so when you eat this, it is to, do, it is to remember that, to remember that God came, to remember that God walked the earth, right? And then it says he took the cup and then he said these words, if you'll say them with me, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's a very sort of creepy thing to hear, but for them, it makes sense because it's rooted in the Passover story, which has to do with blood across the doorposts. They understand it. They understood as well in the sacrificial system that forgiveness and freedom doesn't come without the shedding of blood. They get that. And I would say in our world to some degree that there also is not much freedom without the shedding of blood, which isn't God's heart or desire, but it is true. And so Jesus picks up this cup and says, this blood that's poured out from me is for you. It's a new covenant, a new relationship, one of grace. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we'll say this together, he wrote about the communion saying, for as often as you drink this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I love this statement because it's rooted in history and also the future. Like there's a proclamation of what happened, that Jesus died. And then there's this hopeful statement that he will come again. And so it's essentially this picture of the communion is participating in the transition, the space between the Lord's death and the return. The communion is a reminder for us that we still live in this transitional space, this space of sickness. We don't always know how we got to where we are, and we don't really know what's coming sometimes, and sometimes we're physically sick or emotionally sick or even spiritually sick, but the communion reminds us that that's where we live in the moment. In these days, the scripture calls the last days between the Lord's death and his coming again. And so each week we eat the bread and we drink the juice, not just as a remembrance of what God has done, but also, as Paul says, a proclamation an announcement of what is to come. But until then, he says, this is what we do.
And so I'm going to pray, and then you can make your way to one of the four tables around the room, and then we'll sing on the way out. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for um, the way that you have met the needs of people, uh, both in this congregation and uh, in your church around the world, that it's always um, taking care of itself from within, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And God, we just pray that you continue to form us into that community, that it's a place where people are getting connected into relationships where this kind of care is happening, this kind of care is taking place. And God, most importantly, that those of us who are not sick, those of us who are doing fine, those of us who are cheerful, we pray that you give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear the needs of others so that we can in turn just act as those elders who are readily available to pray for and to do all that we can to help. God, we love you, and as we take this communion, let that remind us that you love us and that as we live in between uh, your death and your coming again, uh, that you will give us the strength to move day by day. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.